ant suits. Last time we talked, we saw the death of Patroclus and the immediate aftermath of that death. We then illustrated a principle. Since one of the people who injured Patroclus was, well, let's review very quickly. Who was it that first got the big hit on the back of the head of Patroclus, sent his, Achilles' technically, helmet spinning along the ground and broke his corselet? Apollo. Apollo. So Apollo is the person that Patroclus gives first credit to behind the will of Zeus. So actually Zeus plus Apollo plus fate seems to be who he gives credit to. Then somebody comes around who has killed 20 people so far, stabs him in the back, rips the spear out, runs away from Patroclus because he's so terrifying. Yes? Euphorbus. Euphorbus. Now something about Euphorbus. We heard that name many times before. Is this the first time we're introduced to him? First time we're introduced to him. Since it's the first time, is he a major character who recurs or a minor character? Minor, minor character. Who can tell me what the maxim is we know? When a minor character blanks a blank, blank happens. <laughs> this is like a Jeopardy question. Or final wheel of fortune question. Yes? When a minor character injures a major character, the minor character gets killed by a major character. Very good. When the minor character injures a major character, a major character then kills that minor character, whether it be the same major character or a different one. In this case, obviously, it won't be Patroclus. Why? He's dead. Because he's dead. Very good. Very good, very good, very good. And who is the third slayer of Patroclus? Only his third slayer, yes. Hector. Hector, yes. And Patroclus, there's another maxim or that we get to see. What is it that major characters get to do right before they die, yes? Uh, say their last words. They get their last words. They get a last speech. And in his final speech, Patroclus made a couple very powerful claims. One claim was, how many hectares would it take to take down a healthy Patroclus? 20. Yes, so Patroclus is thinking fairly highly of himself, even though he's got a spear wound in his back and now in his belly. And remember that Hector is actually having this talk to him while he is on the ground with a spear in his belly, because Hector actually puts his foot down and pulls the spear out, which is the act that I think actually kills Patroclus. Uh, ends his life. But Patroclus makes another very fearsome claim to strike fear into the heart of Hector, to take away the glory of his victory or that, that positive glow that he must feel. Yes? That Achilles will kill him. Achilles will come kill him. Do you think that's a true prophecy? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, and so we saw there was, since Patroclus is a major character with the most famous armor of anybody on the field, and he's lying around defenseless, dead on the Trojan plain, what is everybody trying to do around him? Yes. Strip his armor. Strip his armor, which is Achilles' armor. And in fact, Hector does so. That said, the valiant efforts of Aias the Greater and Menelaus, uh, as well as several other Achaeans, they keep Patroclus from being taken by Hector and having his head put on a pike. Good. Then we saw that uh, Antilochus, son of Nestor, is given the worst job in the world. What is the worst job in the world at this particular moment, if you want to stay alive? <laughs> yes. Uh, tell Achilles that his best friend has just been killed on the battlefield that you were also on, so he might assume you should have done more to help him. And it's like, whoa, whoa. I would not be, want to be the person who had to go tell Achilles that his best friend just got killed at all. At all. All right. Good. Good, good, good. And we actually know that from Patroclus' own words about Achilles. What is it that he said to Nestor about 
uh, Achilles, which was his reason for trying to leave the tent immediately and not stand around. That he blames even those who are blameless. Right, 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 right. Okay, bang, here it comes. So, book 18, first 47 lines or so. Antilochus brings news of Patroclus' death to Achilles. And this is a very sophisticated scene. It shows just how clever and smart Antilochus is. Because as he tells Achilles the news, asks for Achilles' hands, he grabs his hands. And now, we first hear that, and you probably think, by imagining, that's a very natural thing to do, right? To take someone's hands when you give them very difficult news. And Well, that makes sense, right? Because actually, we know that human touch is analgesic. Does anybody know what that word means? Analgesic means it's pain-relieving. In fact, that's why you often hug people when they're feeling bad, because it actually literally makes them feel better. And so when you give someone bad news, generally you squeeze their shoulder, right, or their trap, or you, you give them a little side hug, or you give them a big real hug, or you hold their hands. Well, the reason is because you're about to deal them a painful blow, and you generally want to limit that. That is not why Antilochus holds Achilles' hand. What is it Achilles can use his hands to do after Antilochus gives him some news he does not want to hear? Yes? Kill him. Kill him. He can strangle him. He could take out a sword or dagger and stab him. He would need his hands to do this, though. If his hands are priorly occupied with Antilochus's hands, though, what idea might not go through his mind to kill Antilochus? And so Antilochus might survive this. And in fact, that is what happens. And well... Often, I've had students in the past, they do not think that Achilles deals with this news in a very mature way. He freaks out. And you're like, you say, what, what does that mean, freaks out? Well, he tears out his hair, several clumps of it, and then he pours dust all over his face. It sounds like he's throwing a what? A fit. A fit. What's an even better word for that? We say, you're having a little temper. Tantrum. Tantrum, right? Is he looking very mature or immature here? Immature. Well, given the choices he's made in the past, would you expect him to be mature or immature? Immature. Immature, right? He's not a mature guy. As gifted a soldier as he is, he relies on his mom for everything, doesn't live up to his fate. In fact, we're going to see him rely on his mom to get him some armor back here. And lets, lets his friend go out to fight a battle that is, frankly speaking, his fight to fight, or his battle to fight. Yes? Wouldn't that also kind of just be because he mad at himself for letting what happened happen, not just because he's got a tantrum? That is an excellent question. Is he so upset because he's not just mad at the fact that his friend died, but that he might in some way be responsible for the death of his friend? I think that is clearly part of it. Yes. I think that he is being hit. The situation is so complicated and it's hitting him all at once. And that feeling of pain that he has is his necessity to untangle all those emotions. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's right. That's right. In fact, current contemporary neuroscientists suggest that that is actually what you do after a traumatic event. You move it from the right brain, the, uh, the side of the brain that's either the non-articulated or the anomalous part, the part that deals with that, which is information that you don't yet have. Um, as you analyze the situation you were in that caused you pain, it moves from the right side of your brain, your right hemisphere, to your left. 
which means you literally have to process your negative emotions to make them hurt you less. Which means when something really bad happens, you got to think it through. Why did it happen? How did it happen? Because the pain, at least as the hypothesis, seems to stay with you because you have not yet adapted to the situation that caused the pain. As in, you have not learned your lesson yet, so it might, what again? Happen again, and that is not what you want. That is not what you want. All right. Lines 148 to 242 or so. Iris, the rainbow goddess, messenger of the gods in the Iliad. It will be Hermes in the Odyssey. She commands Achilles to help retrieve Patroclus' body, but he gives her a very reasonable, reasonable response. It would be nice to go help my friend and save his body, but I don't have any what anymore? Armor. Armor. How's he supposed to go out and fight without armor? Well, maybe if he could use Aias the Greater's shield, he could go out and fight. But who's using Aias the Greater's shield right now to defend Patroclus' body? Aias the Greater. He's got his shield. And so this is a very, 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 very famous scene. Achilles then goes and stands above the battle. He screams three times, and Athena puts a flame above his head and the aegis behind him. The aegis, you recall, is the buckler or the shield that she has with the face of Medusa or a gorgon on it. And so it causes what in those who see it? Fear. Not just fear. What's a fancier word for fear, which also means to become stone, to become Petrified. Very good. It means actually phakio petros. Petros is a word for rock from Greek and Latin. So it's like, hmm, to make rock, to make still, to be petrified with fear. And so the flame above his head means that everybody what's him. What do you do when you see a, what do you do when there's a fire? No, first you have to. Yes? You look at it. That's right. There's a fire. You stare at it. And, well, there's good evolutionary reason for that. Can you guess what killed lots of us over time and still does, especially in California? Fire, fire of course. And that's why we represent some of the worst aspects of human existence with fire. Hell, anger, the cover of this book, war, fire, fire, fire. Good. The flame means that everybody sees him. He stands out. The Aegis means that everybody feels what when they see him? Petrified. Fear. And well, he screams out three times, and this is what happens. Every time he screams, several men die. In fact, 12 total men perish. I think I used to think it was nine. But yeah, 12 men perish. And so you might ask, why do they die when he screams? Do they have heart attacks? Is he that scary? Or are they just like, nope? <laughs> <laughs> close, close. What seems to happen is that, well, there's this guy with like a flame above his head in the Aegis, and like, you're doing what you do, and then, oh my gosh, it's Achilles, and you're on a chariot, and all of a sudden your chariot falls over, and so and a horse falls on you. Or you fall on your spear. Or you fall on somebody else who has a spear. It's a huge melee. You lose your focus for a minute, and this is why you're not supposed to text and drive at the same time. Supposedly several people die a day because of this sort of thing. Uh, you take your mind off what you're doing for two seconds. What can happen in those two seconds? 
can die, especially if you're going 60 miles an hour. If you're on a chariot, you might be going like 15 miles an hour. But a lot can happen in two seconds. I mean, a ton can happen. I mean, NFL, you know, uh, quarterbacks can run 40 meters in, in just over four seconds. And so a second is a very long time. And so these men, they see Achilles, they get scared, they make a mistake, they fall off their chariots onto other people's spears. Or they fall off and they get trampled by, by horses. They are thrown into what? Mm, chaos, disarray. The presence of Achilles, his presence is enough to throw the enemy into disarray. You need to think about just how much respect and clout that is for him and how terrifying. I know the clout has been conscripted now and people watch that in videos. It'll be funny if you all, you all listen to this in like 10 years, you'll be like, we were so dumb. And uh, we'll all think that. We will all think that. All right, good. Well, here we go. Here's another maxim we know. Something about Hector, whenever Puladamus, who is his wise advisor, gives him good advice at the end of this story, what will we expect Hector to do in response to that excellent, excellent, very wise advice? Yes? Ignores it. Ignores it. And so, Puladamus sees the disarray of the men, sees Achilles, puts the situation together. He says, Hector, we should retreat to the Trojan city. Hector declines. Hector has never once effectively stood against Achilles outside of the walls of Troy. In fact, once he got caught by Achilles outside of there, near the tree by the Skyan gates, that's the name of the gates of Troy, and he had to retreat. Which means, even if Hector gets caught outside of Troy by Achilles, he's done. He declines. He doesn't understand the situation. In fact, this will lead to many, many many deaths of his own men. Because, well, guess what's going to happen? Achilles is going to get some new armor. He's then going to rejoin the battle. What's going to happen to all the Trojans who fight against the Achaeans, yes? They're going to die, and they're going to die even more, not only because they're fighting against a superior fighting force with a superior commander, they're also going to die because what are the Achaeans going to force them into doing, which is going to result in more deaths of them? what Odysseus was afraid of happening. They're going to have to turn their back because they're going to have to retreat during battle. When you retreat during battle and your enemy has projectiles like rocks and spears and arrows and they are also fast and have chariots, what can they do to you as you retreat? Kill you, especially if you're retreating into a city. Because if you're retreating into a city, do you retreat all in one do you, in multiple directions or all in one direction? Do you filter into sort of a line? Well, what does that make it very easy for me to do if I'm your enemy? Yeah, you're all in one area. makes it much easier to line you up and kill you. Yes? Then what would be the best like, thing to do? Would you retreat? Or? Well, the problem with Hector's perspective right now is that he has tasted some success, and he doesn't realize that that success is due to A, Achilles being outside of the battle, and B, the help of Zeus does not understand that actually Zeus is working against him. And so you might understand that to be a metaphor for in life when things are going really well, but something very bad is lurking and is going to come about. The appropriate thing for him to do would be to retreat and bring them in back inside of the, of the city. Now, would that save them over time? Probably not. But would that be the wisest thing he could do at this moment in order to, to save lives in the immediate present? Yes. Hector's mistake will cost lives 
will cost him the lives of his men, it will also cost him his own life. Finally. And so, <laughs> I don't say that to be cruel to Hector, but rather he has been making lots of mistakes and other people have been paying for them. And so now he will have to pay for his mistake. All right. Let's talk about the shield of Achilles. I think this is a very good image of it, a nice stencil. You notice, just a couple things to notice from the get-go. Just right in the middle are stars and celestial objects, like the moon and the sun, right at the center of all existence. On the edge, it's hard to see it, but it is the river ocean. And so these are the two edges of all existence, the sky and the sea. Those are the edge edges of our world, right, in some way. The sky is the edge of the world that keeps us from space. The ocean is the edge of the world of land. And so these are all boundaries of us. Very beautiful. Let's, uh, let's talk a little more about it. I want you to write this part down. And perhaps we can read some of this together. It's just, it's a fairly long bit. And so the actual shield of Achilles, let me get the lines, is from book 18 lines 483 or so to 607. Okay. And so first we get a description of the earth and the sky, lines 483 to 489. And well, I, I'm, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read this. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to change this up very quickly. Everybody just take out your books very quickly. Let's read this together. Book 18, line 4. 83 or so, that takes us to page 409 in the Lattimore. This is the most famous description of art in the Iliad. And I suppose I should give you some description of Hephaestus' workshop um, after. And I will. I will. I'll tell you a few facts about Hephaestus' workshop that you will want to know. Because... Achilles asks his mother Thetis, well, now that he has no armor, what does he need? Armor. So who is he going to get it from? Who, who he gets everything from? His mom. And his mom, how, does it, how is it that she gets everything? Zeus owed her a what? So can you guess what Hephaestus owes her? Does anybody recall why Hephaestus owed her a favor? She did something very kind for him after his Luciferian fall from Olympus, when he was thrown by Zeus, when he got in Zeus's way. Yes? Uh, she had taken care of him and sheltered him for many years. She took care of him and sheltered him with another nymph. Anybody remember the name of the other nymph? Yes? Was it Ocean? It wasn't Ocean. It was not Ocean. Yes? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I think it was... And sometimes I forget these names, but I think it was Eurynome, daughter of Ocean. Yes, it was. It was Eurynome. And so for nine years, Hephaestus had to heal. And during that time, Thetis and Eurynome took care of him. So when Thetis shows up to his palace, to his workshop, she is greeted with great love. And thus Hephaestus honors the what to Thetis? What is the guest-host relationship's Greek term? The zinium. Hephaestus says, come in, have a seat. You are welcome here. And very interestingly, made of gold are several servants of Hephaestus that he has created. What is it that we call mechanical beings 
who are like humans who are capable of working and have consciousness. We call them what? Robots or artificial intelligence or androids, right? Technically gynoids if they're female. This is the first time in all literature that androids are mentioned in the Iliad way back when because Hephaestus has golden shining female attendants who can work who are automatons who can work on their own are capable of their own motion and action yes you might say that the ones in Star Wars are like the ones in the Iliad that all automatons are based on this idea the idea that a craftsman is so great that he can create a being that is capable of what he is capable of. An art-producing being. You might say that that's part of the image of, say, a divine figure, right? That a divine figure, who is a maker or creator, can create a being that can also do what? Create. And what, what do we call human creations? Three-letter word. Art. That's right. That's right. And so you might say, did Hephaestus have any part in the creation of man? And I'd say that's a very excellent question. A character very similar to Hephaestus, also a god of fire, helped to create man in the Greek mythology. Does anybody remember the name of the titan who could see the future, who brought fire to mankind? <coughs> fire indicating consciousness and language, the way by which humans change the world around them, which only humans can do in this particular way. Because only we have harnessed fire. His name was Prometheus. Prometheus. All right. Let's start at line 478 or so. And we're going to read this. It's going to take a little while. First of all, he, Hephaestus, forged a shield that was huge and heavy, elaborating it about and threw around it shining triple rend that glittered. And the shield strap was cast of silver. There were five folds composing the shield itself. And upon it, he elaborated many things in his skill and craftsmanship. He made the earth upon it, and the sky, and the sea's water, and the tireless sun, and the moon waxing into her fullness, and on it all the constellations that festoon the heavens, the Pleiades, the Hyades, and the strength of Orion, and the bear, whom men give also the name of the wagon. We call the bears the big and the little dipper, who turn about in a fixed place and looks at Orion, and she alone is never plunged in the wash of the ocean. So that's what's in the middle. And now let's go out. On it he wrought in all their beauty two cities of mortal men. And there were marriages in one and festivals. They were leading the brides along the city from their maiden chambers under the flaring of torches, and the loud bride song was arising. The young men followed the circles of the dance, and among them the flutes and the lyres kept up their clamor, as in the meantime the women standing each at the door of her court, admired them. The people were assembled in the marketplace where a quarrel had arisen. So we see both the symbol of harmony and of conflict. And two men were disputing over the blood price for a man who had been killed. This reminds us a little bit of where, where two men now stand in division of conflict within what was otherwise a peaceful organization. Who do we think of? Agamemnon and... Achilles. One man promised full restitution in a public statement, but the other refused. Reminds us even more of whom? Agamemnon and Achilles. Agamemnon and Achilles. And would accept nothing 
both then made for an arbitrator to have a decision, and people were speaking up on either side to help both men, but the heralds kept the people in hand, as meanwhile the elders were in session on benches of polished stone in the sacred circle, and held in their hands the staves of the heralds who lifted their voices. The two men rushed before these and took turns speaking their cases, and between them lay on the ground two talents of gold to be given to that judge, who in this case spoke the straightest opinion. Very good. So we find two cities. Here's the second city. But around the other city were lying two forces of armed men shining in their war gear. So one city is a city at peace, a city at peace where there is a marriage, but there has also been a murder, because even in peaceful places do murders occur. In fact, we know that after yesterday, there was another mass shooting, right? Uh, just north of us, 12 people killed, very sadly, very sad. Or rather, 11 people killed, and then the person who killed them killed himself, which is almost always what happens at the end of a mass shooting. We can talk about why that is. I think it's fairly clear. Um, it is the swan song of somebody, generally, when they do that sort of thing. Swan song is the song that a swan sings before it dies. <clears throat> For one side, counsel was divided, whether to storm and sack, or share between both sides the property and all the possessions, the lovely citadel, citadel held hard within it. But the, people's, the city's people were not giving way, and armed for an ambush. Their beloved wives and their little children stood on the rampart to hold it, and with them the men with age upon them. But meanwhile the others went out, and Ares led them in Pallas Athena. Why would both of those gods lead somebody during a war? Yes. Very good, very good. Okay, let's move on to uh, line 541 or so. He made upon it a soft field, the pride of the tilled land, wide and triple plowed with many plowmen upon it, and wheeled their teams at the turn and drove them in either direction. And as these, making their turn, would reach the end strip of the field, a man would come up to them at this point and hand them a flag. All right, move on to 550. He made on it the precinct of a king. Or laborers were reaping. Remember, you use which instrument, which uh, farm tool do you use to reap wheat that has been sown into the ground and then raised up? It is what the grim reaper uses. Yes. A scythe. Yes. And so they are reaping what they have sown with the sharp reaping hooks in their hands. Of the cuts swayed, some fell along the lines of reaping one after another while the sheep binders caught up others and tied them with vine ropes. It's interesting. Contrasting that image with the war, it almost makes people seem as if they are like things that have been sown into the ground that grow up tall and strong and beautiful and eventually get reaped for what they are. Very interesting. You might say, is that why the grim reaper has a scythe? Is he reaping us? And I would say, obviously. In fact, that's why uh, many people call uh, death or the death of many the great harvest. I think that's actually a Christian idea. Uh, very good. All right. Move to the next page. Let's see. Let's see. We have another image here. We have a vineyard then. And then horn straight oxen, cattle, and then we even have a dancing floor at the end. And so, what does this... A, why do we have this giant description of a shield? B, what does it mean? C, how does it relate to the activity of a poem? Well, the shield seems to be itself a pastiche of the poem, a small representation of what the poem is itself. It includes on it a city at war, a city at peace, people reaping, people sowing, 
people dancing, people drinking, people conducting a marriage, people conducting a trial for a murder, <clears throat> seems to be a representation of all that exists in human life, which seems to be an idea of what you are supposed to represent through artful speech or a poem. What is it, therefore, that Homer is attempting to represent through his poem? All that a what is. What sorts of creatures are we talking about? All that a human is, and all that a human can experience in this world. Can you experience looking at the heavens? Are you bound by them? Yes? Absolutely. Every single day, you see the sun and the moon. What about the water? Does it keep you from going freely from land to the next land? Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And then your life. Can you know peace and war, conflict and harmony? Of course. Even within harmony, can you have conflict? Even within conflict, can you have harmony? Do you have to toil during your life and work? Yes, of course. Do you also have times of respite and fun? Also, yes. This shield is attempting to represent the limits of human experience and to give you some idea of what you are as a person. And so here would be my big question. Is that the ultimate goal of the Iliad as a story? To teach you what you are. Because can you be like Achilles and get resentful and angry when something you think you deserve is taken from you? Can you be like Agamemnon and even though you're supposed to be the leader and brave, show cowardice? Can you be like Hector and get caught up and become arrogant and think you are strong when really your strength comes from outside yourself? These are, I think, important questions. In fact, we laugh at Achilles for being a mama's boy. Why is it that we know the concept of mama's boy? Because that's something only Achilles has ever done? No. Or something we have seen countless times in art and perhaps our own experience? There we are. There we are. All right. So we see plowing, reaping, further scenes of country life, cattle, sheep, Dance, ocean, earth, skies, two cities, city of peace, city at war, bang. Okay, here's the analysis that I wrote out. I want you to get this down. And mm, mm, actually, I told you that I would give you time to work today. We will talk about this further.